Hey friends, you are listening to the Grace Story Church podcast. To learn more about Grace Story and how you can get plugged into our community, visit gracestory.church. This week we'll be continuing our series in Deuteronomy. And the sermon text for today is Deuteronomy 4, verses 44 through chapter 5, verse 5. This is the law that Moses set before the people of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes, and the rules which Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt, beyond the Jordan in the valley opposite Beth Hor, in the land of Sion, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, whom Moses and the people of Israel defeated when they came out of Egypt. And they took possession of his land. And the land of Og, the king of Bashan, the two kings of the Amorites, who lived to the east beyond the Jordan, from Auror, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon, as far as Mount Sirion, that is Hermon, together with all the Arabah, on the east side of the Jordan, as far as the Sea of the Arabah, under the slopes of Pigsah. And Moses summoned all of Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us. We are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. The word of the Lord. This is Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 44 through 5, verse 5. Deuteronomy 4, 44 through 5, 5. I saw a Facebook post the other day. It was a birthday post. And the person, you know how on our birthday post sometimes we just really lay it on as far as how much we love this person, right? And what the person said was, I love so-and-so more than life itself. And, you know, I wasn't like being critical or anything like that, but I just started later on rehearsing that phrase in my mind. And I started thinking about it like, that's not even really possible, is it? It's not possible for us to love someone more than life itself. Because then, okay, well, does that mean you love them more than you love that person and the second best thing in the world together, right? Because how much you love this person plus how much you love this thing added together is more than you love this person. So the only way it could possibly be true is if you have a negative affection for everything else in the entire universe, right? then maybe you could love someone more than life itself. But then I just kind of, this is what my mind does. I'm sorry, guys. But then I got to thinking about it some more. I was like, well, it could be possible if we're talking about God. And only if we're talking about God because 
we owe God an infinite affection so that it is possible that we could love God more than life itself because if we added up everything else that we love all together, it could still fall short of our love for God. And if you subtract it all from this infinite love for God, then we would still have an infinite love for God. So it's, it really is possible to love God more than life itself. Isn't that interesting? Just mathematically, it's possible. But what this passage is talking about is kind of this reality that no matter, no matter what we're talking about, no matter what we're thinking about, no matter what the Bible is on about, no matter what it's pushing us toward, no matter what our life is focused on, no matter what's happening, no matter who we're with, it's never not about God. It's never not about God. You've never uttered a phrase that was not ultimately about God. You've never enjoyed a relationship that was not ultimately about God. You've never taken a class that was not ultimately about God. You've never done a job that was not ultimately about God. You've never filled out a piece of paperwork that was not ultimately about God. You've never eaten a snack that was not ultimately about God. It is never not about God. Man, I say this sometimes that all truth is God's truth. And what I mean is that 2 plus 2 plus equals 4, sorry, is only true because God determined that it's true. God didn't have to make a world that makes sense. He could have made a world that made no sense at all. He could have made a world where everything was totally random and we couldn't be sure that 2 plus 2 always equals 4. He could have made a world where we're confused all the time about what reality is. Now, God would have known 2 plus 2 equals 4, don't get me wrong. But he could have made a world where we couldn't figure that out, couldn't he? All truth is God's truth and all of the world is God's world. It's inescapable. It's just base level reality. And what Moses is trying to do here, he's trying to drill this reality into the minds of the Israelites. He's trying to get them to see that everything is about God. He's trying to get them to see that every relationship they have is about God. Every meal they eat is about God. Every decision they make is about God. Every, every agreement they enter into is about God. Everything they do to offend their neighbor is about God. Everything they do to please their neighbor is about God. It's always about God in the end because it's God's world. He owns us and we live and breathe and have our existence in him, to put it in the words of Paul. And he's talking to people who aren't Christians. In him, we live and breathe and have our being non-Christians. Right? All humans, all creatures, we live and breathe and have our being in God. You've never taken a breath that wasn't about God. You've never chewed a piece of bubble gum that wasn't about God. It's always about God. It's never not about God. And Moses is going to break down for us some ways in which this is true, some specific ways in which this is true, especially in the context of a community of people who already agree that everything's about God. Man, isn't it tempting to categorize things? Isn't it tempting to compartmentalize things, to have this part of our life that's really about something else, and have this part of our life that's about God? It can never be like that. So let's look and see what Moses has to say, how this fleshes out. What does it mean? 
when we say that everything's about God. So the first thing is this. Look, God's actions, God's actions in the world establish the arena for all of human experience. God's actions in the world establish the arena for all of human experience. In other words, look, what God does determines everything that we have an opportunity to do. If God doesn't do anything, then we don't have an opportunity to do anything. If God doesn't make anything, then we don't have an opportunity to be anyone. God's actions in the world establish our arena for all of human experience. Look at verses 44 and following here. This is the law that Moses set before the people of Israel. In other words, these are the things God's asking them to do, right? These are the testimonies, the statutes, the rules that Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. Who did that, by the way? How'd they get out of Egypt, right? How did they get out of there? It wasn't like prison break. It wasn't like somebody tattooed a map of Egypt all over their body so they could remember all the different places where they could possibly leak out of this powerful nation. No, God did that with no planning on the part of the people. God did it. So they came out of Egypt because God did that. And that's the context for receiving this law beyond the Jordan in the valley opposite Beth Peor in the land of Sihon, the king of the Amorites. What? Where are they? Where are they about to receive this law? In the land ruled by a giant. In a land ruled by someone who could probably whip 200 Israelites by himself. Right? They're living there. Now this is their land because they have dispossessed this people that's much mightier than them. How did that happen? How did that happen? Did they have some lucky, some lucky moments and just happen to overtake them because of that? No, God did that. God acted, and now Israel has an opportunity to respond. Israel has an opportunity to live their life now in response to what God has done. He lived at Heshbon, whom Moses and the people of Israel defeated when they came out of Egypt. And they took possession of his land and the land of Og, the king of Bashan, the two kings of the Amorites who lived to the east beyond the Jordan from Arer, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon, as far as Mount Sirion, that is Hermon, together with all the Arabah on the east side of the Jordan, as far as the Sea of the Arabah under the slopes of Pisgah. So it's God's action that has now determined Everything that Israel has an opportunity to do and say as a nation and as a people. Everything we do, everything we do takes place in the context of what God does. Everything we do takes place in the context of what God does. God's actions shape the world in which we have an opportunity to live and move and make choices and do our human things. And understand this, the law is given after Israel is delivered from Egypt, not before. God acted, and then he asked them to do something in response. He didn't say, hey, make you a deal. I've got some rules here. I'm going to read them to you. 
if you will accept these rules, then I am then going to rescue you out of Egypt. That's not what happened, is it? No, he, he rescued them out of Egypt, and then he told them how he expected them to live. God's action shaped the context for Israel's response. And that's the way it is all throughout the Bible. God's action builds the cosmos, doesn't it? It shapes the context for all existence. He speaks, the world springs to life. And now we have a world to live in. Same thing here with Israel that we just learned about. And then with the church, Jesus takes on human form, comes into the world, lives in perfect obedience to his father, dies in perfect obedience to his father, is resurrected in glory. And then the truth about Jesus, spoken by the apostles, brings the church into existence. The church springs to life in response to what God has done. And then at some point, somebody spoke the gospel to you. Your heart sprung to life in response to what God has done. God's actions shape the context for everything we do. He establishes the arena for human existence. Has anybody ever read any Charles Dickens? You're probably more familiar with the Christmas story or something, right? Bleak House is about this famous law case called Jarndyce versus Jarndyce that just goes on and on and on. Um, it, it, here's a quote from that. The scarecrow of a suit has in course of time become so complicated that no man alive knows what it means. The parties to it understand it least, but it has been observed that no two lawyers can talk about it for five minutes without coming to total disagreement about the premises. And isn't that like a good summation of the law in general? We just tend to think about the law that we just want to argue about it, debate about it. But that's not what the law is for. It's not a subject for deliberation. You want to know what it is? It's a gift from God to shape our lives in obedience to him. That's what the law is. To put it into catechism terms, look, what is Torah? Torah is the life-giving word from God that teaches and trains us in God's ways. The law is a gift to shape us and train us and help us to be formed into God's ways. It's not a subject for deliberation. And it's so easy to color obedience as legalism. In fact, a lot of times, like on a very just intuitive level, we can tend to think of legalism as just like too much obedience, right? If you obey too much, now you're legalistic. That's not what legalism is. Legalism is not too much attention to obedience. Obedience is good. Of course we should obey God. And I hope you're teaching your kids that obey is not a bad word. Obedience is how we show love to those who have authority over us. Obedience is good and God demands it from us. And the law defines it. The law helps us know what obedience to God actually looks like. How can we obey him? Well, we have a law that tells us how we can obey God. It's also easy to assume that like the hand we're dealt predetermines our obedience or lack of it. Have you guys seen the headlines? Maybe not even headlines, but like opinion articles, like it would be a mistake to... Uh, 
reduce what Hamas has done to just like evil. Have you guys seen that? It would be a mistake to call this evil and, and not try to understand it deeper and not try to like get, okay, well, that's cool, but, but it is evil. <laughs> and the reason that I know that, the reason that I'm certain about that is because God has revealed to us what is good and what is evil. We have an objective account of what God deems good and evil. It's called the law, right? It's right here. It's written out for us. And the law is meant for us to obey. God intends for us to obey. In fact, he says this very, very clearly. Listen to this. Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today. I'm sorry I was too loud there, sweet girl. I'll be quieter. That I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. Man, you mean God actually wants us to be careful to do what he commands? Is God a legalist? God is not a legalist. God loves us, and he commands us to love him. And he shows us how to do that by spelling out his desires in his law. Obedience is not legalism. They're not the same thing. Legalism is about our motivations. Legalism is about the multiplication of laws and the motivation for laws. Obedience is attention to and adherence to God's commands on our lives. A response of love. Legalism, check this out, is performative. It's performative. In other words, let me perform this action in order to get God to see me, take note of me, and perhaps he'll love me because of what he sees. Obedience is responsive. It says God sees me. God loves me, God takes note of me, and now I want to obey because of this relationship that he's already initiated. I'm living in the context of what God has done because God's action has already shaped the arena for my entire experience. That's obedience. It's a response of love. And it's our responsibility to obey. Our difficulties and our struggles do not predetermine our capacity for obedience. And they certainly don't let us off the hook for disobedience. Rather, we're responsible. We're responsible to say yes to everything we know about God and his desires. We're responsible to say yes to everything we know about God and his desires. God's word, God's revelation makes us responsible. All humans have some responsibility because all humans at some point have stepped outside and seen the sunrise. All humans have seen the stars at night. All humans have felt the cooling breeze that comes as God's gift in the midst of a hot day. We're responsible. We're responsible to a creator who's given us those good things. And, and those of us who have heard his word are responsible to the degree that we've heard it and understood it. And every single human who's ever lived 
check this out, has failed in the responsibility that was given to him to obey God on the basis of what they've seen and known. There's never been a human who lived up even to the responsibility that they had. Because we're broken by sin. We're turned away from God, not towards him because of sin. God's law warrants our obedience. And here's the reason God's law warrants our obedience. It's because it's from God. That's why it warrants our obedience. Because it's from God. And God's law establishes what it means for humans to flourish as humans. God's law establishes what it means for humans to flourish as humans. Now some of you have been around here long enough and have heard me preach enough times that you might be able to guess where I'm about to go. I'm about to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 to a very important word that shows up in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. What word is it that I'm about to hop into? Humans are made as the what? Image of God. Now, a lot of you have heard me trace this all the way to, all the way through the story of Israel. Because here's what happens. Remember, image, image, right? This idea, it's not, a, it's not as much of a representation or a picture as it is a representative or an ambassador, someone who carries God's authority. So an image is not about looking like God. An image is about acting on God's behalf, right? Carrying his authority, carrying his desires through our lives into the world. That's what being God's image is about. Well, in the ancient Near East, the images that the rival gods had shaped to show who they were, right? Like, if you, went, if you were from another country besides Israel, your country would have had a god, and that god would have had, you would have had some statues of that god. And the statues, they weren't just like pictures of that god. They were supposed to carry the power of that god. So, like, if, if you, got into the, um, you got into a room with this thing, right, you, supposedly this thing would do you some damage. Are you with me? It's, it's, it's power. It's authority. This, this thing has the authority of, and so you would, like, worship it, and it's the same thing as worshiping God himself, right? Well, check this out. In the temple, right, in the Hebrew temple, what did God, God's about to tell us here in just a minute. Next week, God's going to tell us not to make any images, right? He doesn't want us to make any. It doesn't matter what it looks like and what shape it's in. It doesn't matter what kind of likeness it's in. Don't do it. Just don't make any images of God. Well, that means if you go into the temple, you're not going to find a statue of God, are you? You're going to find uh, several layers of rooms. And in the innermost room, you're going to find a little box, right? And inside that little box, you're going to find... What? The Ten Commandments. That's what's standing where the image would normally be standing. Are, are you with me? What does that mean? Why? Why is that the case? Because the image of God is upheld in an ethic. The image of God is upheld in an ethic. We carry out our agency in glad obedience to God. And this is what it means to flourish as a human. 
we live in alignment with God's commands right here. Well, what does it mean? How, how do we flourish as a human? Well, you can start by worshiping the right God in the right way, right? Then you can, you can make sure you talk about God in the right way. And you don't take him for granted or you don't abuse your relationship with God. Then, then you, can, you can rest in recognition that God wants rested. Then you can honor your parents. Don't kill anybody. Don't sleep with somebody else's spouse. Not a good idea. Don't steal things. Don't lie about people. You see this? This is how to flourish as a human being in community. This is how we express God's image through our agency that's given to us in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. This fell on my notes. Bottom line, God's law warrants our obedience for all of those reasons. And then in verses 4 and 5, God's covenant is based on relationship. God's covenant is based on relationship. Look at verses 4 and 5. The Lord spoke with you face to face. At the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. And what's the bottom line here? Like the real God of the universe wants to have a relationship with the real you. The real God of the universe wants to have a relationship with the real you. And in this case, Moses is saying this to the people of Israel. Well, what's their challenge to believing this? What's the thing that's standing between them and understanding that God wants to have a relationship with them? Well, what might they be thinking? Well, God didn't give this law to us. God gave this law to a generation ago. God didn't rescue us out of Egypt. God rescued our parents and grandparents out of Egypt. God didn't walk us across the Red Sea dry footed. He walked them across the Red Sea dry-footed. God didn't show us all these signs and wonders in Egypt. He showed them all these signs and wonders in Egypt. So really, this is all about somebody else. It's not about us. This is all about a relationship that God had with our parents, not about a relationship that God has with us. Well, what does Moses say? So look, the Lord in verse 2 made a covenant with us in Horeb. What? In Horeb, God made a covenant with us, not with our fathers, did the Lord make this covenant? In other words, not with this generation that's gone by. That's not who he made it with. He made it with us. And who are here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain. Out of the midst of the fire. These people mostly don't remember that. Not when Moses is reading this as they're about to enter the promised land. But this is meant for them. It's especially for them. And the same is true of God's word for us all down through the generations. It's just as much for us as it is for the people who were the first recipients. 
the word of God is just as much for us as it is for the people who were the very first recipients because God's covenant is based on relationship. And God wants a relationship with you specifically, individually. He wants you to be accountable to him. He wants you to have a deep and abiding faith in him. You specifically. He doesn't want you just to inherit somebody else's faith. He wants you to own it. He doesn't want you to think about faith as something that's just your default because of who your parents are or because of your upbringing or any of those things. He wants you to own your faith for it to be yours because of your relationship with him. He wants to know you directly. And man, these people, the Israelites were afraid of the fire. And Moses is going back and forth between this relationship with the people who are now being read this law and the people who were present there physically. But the people who were present there physically, they were afraid because of the fire. They were afraid to go up the mountain. They were afraid to approach God. So what did God do? God approached them. And that's the beautiful thing about God. He breaks down barriers and he brings us near. He breaks down barriers and he brings us near. Even when the barriers reside in our own hearts, God breaks them down by the power of the gospel and he brings us near. In this case, he breaks them down by the power of the word. He speaks through Moses and he brings the people near when they would not come near to him. That's what does God's word do? God's word turns people towards him who would otherwise be running headlong away from him. God's word turns people into his friends who would otherwise be his enemies. God's word turns people into his children who would otherwise be strangers. God's word awakens love for him in the hearts of people who would otherwise be just filled with terror, fear of him. Has the love of God cast a fear out of your heart? Man, do you, do, you, do you feel confident? Do you feel confident in your standing when Jesus comes to judge the world? Do you feel confident that you're his beloved? Man. The only thing standing between you and that kind of confidence is faith. That's it. Listen, there's two kinds of doubt that can get in the way here. First one, I think, is, is the least problematic. And, and that's just, we're all going to have moments when we struggle to believe that there's anything beyond what we see, aren't we? We're just going to have those moments. I have those moments. I have those moments when I just slip into doubt. I slip into the mindset of the world, and I, I struggle to believe that. There's anything beyond atoms and molecules and all that I can see and feel. I have those moments. We're all going to have those moments at some point in our lives. That's one kind of doubt. Then there's another kind of doubt. And that's the doubt where we're just not so sure that Jesus matters. We're just not so sure that what Jesus did on the cross is enough. We're just not so sure that we want to be loved because of what Jesus did. We're just not so sure that we want to be saved by faith. We're just not so sure that we want this grace thing. We're just not so sure that that's the life and that's the 
that's the kind of salvation that we want. And man, that's a, that's a dangerous kind of doubt. The kind of doubt that drives us to create our own salvation. The kind of doubt that drives us to carve our own way. The kind of doubt that drives us to lean on our own understanding. The kind of doubt that drives us to depend on ourselves. The kind of doubt that's going to drive us one day when God speaks to us of our sin. To speak to him of our righteousness. God forbid. And one day in judgment, God's going to speak to us of our sin. We're going to speak to him of the righteousness of Christ. We're going to speak to him of the salvation that's been made ours through what Jesus has done. I'm not going to say a word about the time I helped that old lady get in the door at Kroger. You know what I'm saying? I'm not going to mention that. Oh, the Lord, I did do that. You know what I'm saying? Lots of good things. I know you guys. Man, I think about the way that you live your life. And I, I just, I have so much admiration for all of you. And I, I just, um, I could see how having lived lives of faithfulness like yours that you might be tempted one day to remind God of that. I'm not tempted <laughs> because I know that my only hope is in Jesus Christ. He's broken down the barriers broken down the barriers that have built up by my disobedience. He's broken down the barriers that have built up by my waywardness. He's broken down the barriers that have built up by my doubt. He's broken down the barriers that I've built up by my busyness. He's broken down the barriers that I've built up by my stubbornness. And he's made a way for me to know him, to love him, to be loved by him, and to love being loved by God more than I love anything else in this world. He's made a way for you to love being loved by God more than you love, check this out, life itself. Because he's placed within us by faith in the gospel, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit loves God more than we could ever summon ourselves to love anything in this world. Think about that for a second. The Holy Spirit's love for God, the Holy Spirit's love for God is in you. Do you believe you've ever loved anything like the Holy Spirit loves God? We can, if we can just say yes to him, man, if we can get ourselves out of the way, if we can run from sin, if we can run towards the help that we have in the power of the Holy Spirit, then we can honestly say, we can make like a Facebook birthday post for God. I, I love you more than life itself. And I, I'm not going to be able to like sit in my bed the next day and like, tear it apart on you, you know, I'm not going to be able to kind of like deconstruct that and break down the, the logical um, impossibilities. It's going to be true and real and right. So I want to pray for us. I just want to pray a simple prayer that God would 
awaken us to the deep love for him that's already alive in our hearts. It's there. An infinite love for God resides in your heart, ready for you to discover it and live into it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this truth that Moses just presses in on us from all sides, that it's never not about God. It's always about you. God, I just pray that you would awaken each of us to the infinite love for you that's already alive in our hearts on the basis of faith through the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us to say yes to living into that love every day, starting now. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grace Story Church podcast. For more resources and information on our church, visit gracestory.church.